This is from Mark 11, 1 through 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Well, good morning, everyone. That comes from Mark chapter 11, as Sarah just read for us. And it marks for us Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the beginning of the week that leads to the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday. We'll have a Good Friday service this, uh, this week to mark that event. And then next Sunday, as we gather together back on Easter Sunday morning to remember the resurrection of the Lord. And this event that is described here by the Gospel of Mark, begins in the little village of Bethany. Now, Bethany is situated about a mile and a half or so east of Jerusalem, uh, where the Mount of Olives is, and Bethany is actually uh, is on the eastern side of that mountain, uh, that hill there in, in Israel, uh, right in Jerusalem area. Now, Bethany is a significant place, Uh, For one reason, it's because that's where Lazarus and uh, his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. That's where, uh, you remember the story from the Gospel of John, where uh, word gets news to Jesus that this friend of his, Lazarus, was ill, and uh, Jesus tarries a couple of days, and Lazarus dies. Jesus travels to this little village where, after several days in the tomb... Jesus calls him forth, and he rises from the dead. Now, that event happened uh, very recently to the entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Probably only a couple of weeks have passed, very uh, short time. And because this a miracle that Jesus did was seen by many News of this had spread everywhere. In fact, Jerusalem itself was all astir about this miracle. Um, The religious leaders, they get together. They can't deny what has happened because there are so many testimonies to it. And they even talk amongst themselves, what are we going to do? What if, now the Passover was coming soon, what if the Jews here, the crowd in the city, 
uh, kind of rise up with revolutionary fervor and get some ideas, causing Rome itself, John records in his gospel, to come in and not only destroy the temple, but level the nation. And so they were very concerned about this. In fact, Jesus leaves Bethany for a few days and goes to another small place, Ephraim, and there he stays. But he comes back to Bethany to be with uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And from there, well, what we remember today, Palm Sunday, this event unfolds. And there the crowd, as Jesus uh, gets on top of this, this colt of a donkey, this young dog, donkey that's never been read before, and they move from Bethany to Jerusalem. And the crowd begins to gather, and quite a large crowd. And intermixed in this crowd, John also reminds us, the Gospel of John, that there are those who saw the, the bringing of Lazarus back to life, and they're talking about it. And as the crowd grows, there begins to be this cry of praise out to, to Jesus as he's coming to Jerusalem. As was read this morning, the people shout out, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest. Now, probably many of your versions read Hosanna. Right? Hosanna to God in the highest. And that word, Hosanna, is simply a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word that comes from a psalm, Psalm 118, that basically means uh, save now. God, come and save us now. And this phrase, over time, kind of got uh, transformed into a simple praise to God that people would cry out. Hosanna to God in the highest. And so the version that was read from, from today says, praise God. Blessing on the one who is now coming in Jerusalem, the people are crying out. And blessings, or blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David. And you can imagine this great throng of people with energy and excitement as Jesus rides to the temple, rides into Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount in particular. Now, if you were going to write this story, perhaps let's say imagine that you've never heard of the whole Easter story. If you were going to write it for yourself, how would you finish that story? You remember back to uh, like literature class in school or writing class sometimes? I, I remember this where the teacher would give an assignment and uh, you'd be given maybe a couple of sentences or a paragraph that begins a story and then from your own imagination, you had to finish the story. I, I remember as a kid sometimes, too, playing a game where you, know, you get ten people in a circle and one person would start a story and, you know, make up a couple of sentences and the next person would pick it up and they'd add a couple more sentences and around and around you go and you kind of see how this story unfolds. So if you were going to write this story, how would you finish it? Right, if Hollywood were going to write this story, right, uh, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem and, I don't know, perhaps he would gather all you know, the people together and they would rise up and chant and say, hey, let's kick the Romans out. And uh, Jesus' 12 disciples might become generals and there'd be this you know, exciting war that would unfold with its challenges. But eventually, 
Rome would be kicked out of Israel. Jesus would be established on the throne and everything would be, you know, and they lived happily ever after would be perhaps how you would finish the story. But as Mark recounts it for us in this gospel, that's not what happens. And in fact, it kind of feels a little bit anticlimactic, doesn't it? So here Jesus is riding to the city, to the gate that enters into Jerusalem, which is right by the temple uh, you know, compound there in, on the Temple Mount on that side of Jerusalem. And Mark says that Jesus enters the temple. He looks around at everything. And then he and his 12 disciples, I don't know, get back on the donkey, and they go back to Bethany. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us this, but you can imagine, can't you, the crowd and their reaction. Perhaps they're all standing around with, you know, the praises dying on their lips, looking at one another and saying, what just happened? They were expecting something perhaps dynamic where Jesus would step forward and he would show some leadership. I mean, that was certainly the fear of the religious leaders. They were concerned that the crowd would be stirred up, whether Jesus was for it or not, and kind of thrust him forward, and trouble would come, and Rome would respond, and not only would the temple be destroyed, but uh, the nation would be uh, taken off in captivity too. And you can perhaps imagine the crowd looking at one another. Perhaps they were disappointed or disillusioned. Certainly, they were confused as to what just happened. And it even kind of looks like Jesus doesn't know what he's doing, right? It's like, come on, Lord, like, here is the crisis that is unfolding, and the people are there right in the palm of your hand. If you just give the word, let's go get them, boys, the people would be ready to rise up and to do whatever you would tell them to do. Like, perhaps, how about kick out the Romans? Well, Jesus knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He does. Even in the midst of this little account that Mark gives, he knows about this, this, uh, this colt, this young donkey that's in this little village and Jesus sent a couple of the guys to get it. And he, this little story unfolds where he says, you know, bring it back. And if someone says, tells, says to you, why are you taking this? Say that I have need of it and they'll let you go. And lo and behold, they go into this little village and there's the donkey. And they get it. And some people in the street there say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, well, the Lord needs it. And so they say, okay. And Jesus has the donkey to ride into the city. And Jesus knows what he's doing in, in regard to that too. After all, him riding into Jerusalem on this day, it mirrors, it is prophetic in nature. It pictures, it portrays what the minor prophet Zechariah had declared back in chapter 9. Zechariah 9, you don't have to turn there, but it reads this way. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. 
I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. And he and his realm will stretch from sea to sea, and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Well, here's a picture of the kingdom unfolding with the king right there in the midst. And it is true throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, he spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, this very gospel in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, show to us the, the first words out of Jesus' mouth as he begins his ministry, as Mark recounts it. It reads this way, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news or the gospel, right? That's the word there that's used. Jesus comes and what he announces the gospel to be is, okay, the kingdom of God, it's here, it's available It's present. And certainly, as Jesus taught, he used a lot of parables, and many of those parables were about the kingdom. He said things like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom of God is like a net, or it's like a valuable pearl, or it's like a treasure that someone found that was buried in a field, and you know the rest of the parable, how it how it goes. Jesus says it's like that person then goes off and he sells all that he has so he can buy that field and then have this treasure as his own. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the kingdom and he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added unto you. We even have a little song an old chorus that sings that way, seek, the, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So it's no surprise that the people, the crowd there in Jerusalem, as the Passover was uh, you know, getting ready and people were coming to the city, that the crowd was excited and filled with a sense of anticipation that something special was going to happen. There had been this incredible miracle with Lazarus. And now Jesus riding on a donkey, right? The king is coming to uh, the city of Jerusalem, the capital there in Israel. And the people were hungry for God to do something. And what they wanted God to do was to change their circumstances. So during this time, Israel was under foreign occupation. Rome Uh, had their thumb on Israel, so to speak. Uh, Tomorrow, we've got that beautiful, lovely day. It's called Tax Day that we love, right? And the Israelites loved Tax Day too, right? Uh, No, they didn't. And the Romans taxed them heavenly. uh, Not heavenly, but heavily. I mean, even right next to the temple grounds, uh, extra-biblical literature tells us that there was a fortress, barracks, that housed 
Roman troops. And there uh, was a tower there that overlooked the temple grounds. And so the eyes of the Romans, the military might, was watching everything they did right at the very heart of their religious and political life. And they felt the heavy hand of the Romans. And they were looking for someone to come and to rescue them, to kick the Romans out. But sadly, on this day, they really misunderstood, and throughout much of what Jesus tried to teach and proclaim throughout his early life, they misunderstood what the kingdom was all about. And they missed what their real issue was. You see, the real issue was not the Romans, as bad as they were. The issue was not something external, but really something internal. It was really their own hearts that was the problem. Luke chapter 17 records for us one of these occasions when the Pharisees and Jesus were dialoguing together. And Luke 17 reads this way, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, Here it is, or There it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some versions say, translate it, the kingdom of God is within you. And Jesus' answer was that the kingdom of God was not coming in a manner that the Pharisees would expect. And it would not be initiated, it would not be inaugurated with some kind of special you know, splendor or spectacle. There would be no great military leader who would kind of arrive on the scene and stake out some kind of a geographical claim and uh, rout the Romans, kick them out of Israel. Rather, the kingdom would come silently and unseen, Jesus taught, much as leaven would work into a batch of dough. And that was one of the parables that Jesus taught. He says in Luke 13 these words. He also asked, this is Jesus, what else is the kingdom of God like? It is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in the three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Well, what's Jesus' point here in this, in this little, little parable expression of what the kingdom of God is like? Now, to be sure, Jesus started a revolution. He did. And the kingdom had already begun right under the noses of the religious leaders themselves. And God was beginning to rule, however, in that interior place within the heart of those who began to respond to him. And the king himself, even though they didn't recognize it, was standing right there in their midst. You see, Jesus was telling the Pharisees that he himself, that he in his person brought the kingdom of God to earth. It was the Lord's presence in their midst that gave them a taste, a feel for what the kingdom of God was like and what life in the kingdom 
would look like and could look like. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus mentions his miracles as a sign of the kingdom. And there he says, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus says. See, the kingdom of God appeared in their very midst in the presence and person of Jesus himself. And Jesus was initiating, he was inaugurating, if you will, the kingdom as he changed the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls, one person at a time. See, the kingdom of God is the realm and rule of God's action. His resurrected life as Easter unfolds and his mission. That's why Jesus directs us to seek the kingdom, which I suppose in simplest terms can be put as God or thought of as simply God in actions, God's life unfolding in us. And to seek the kind of rightness, the kind of goodness, or the life that is characterized by that very kingdom itself. And the good news, the gospel, is that the availability of that kind of life in the kingdom can be found as we place our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, as we align our lives with him, as we receive from him not just forgiveness, but also life itself, kingdom life. And that is the good news, that that kind of life right now is available in him. Paul says it's this way in his letter to the Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. There Paul writes these words, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. He says in Ephesians these words, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And then he goes on to say, it's only by grace that you have been saved. Now, the sad thing is that on this Palm Sunday, the original first Palm Sunday, the people were looking for a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of king. I mean, Israel wanted the Romans out. Of course, the ironic thing is that in just a generation, 40 years from this time, Rome comes in, and not only do they destroy the temple as a result of a rebellion that began to stir in the land, but Jerusalem itself was practically leveled to the ground, stone by stone. You see, the real enemy, the real enemy was not the Romans, it was themselves. And the real issue for us is the same. You see, our real issue is not our circumstances, as trying as they can be at times. The real issue is our own sinfulness and our own self-centeredness. See, God's kingdom and a self-centered life or selfishness can't coexist. 
just like love and selfishness can't coexist either. There is a couple in our church that this summer is going to be married, and right now we're, we're doing some premarital counseling together. And the last session or two, we've talked about this beautiful picture of marriage as two very different people, two very imperfect people becoming one, you know, from that Genesis passage, Genesis chapter 2, where there Moses writes, for, therefore for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh, one, metaphorically speaking, one new person. And selfishness is the greatest barrier to oneness. And we're all afflicted with this disease, this issue. And the opposite of selfishness, self-centeredness, is love. Biblical love. Real love. Which is self-giving and unconditional. And this really is the greatest gift that a husband and wife have to offer to one another. But we're not free to offer such a love as this until we have decided against self-centeredness and selfishness. And the choice is ours. Well, God's rule and reign in our lives is the same way. God's rule and his presence, his action in our life, it begins in our hearts. And there he wants to deal with things like sin and death and provide for us a way to experience real life, kingdom life. Resurrection life that is radically different than the world in which we live. And truth be told, it's really, it's really not our circumstances that need to change. What really needs to change is us, you and me. And as we look back at this entry into Jerusalem, again, we can imagine that the crowd perhaps was a bit disappointed in Jesus. And in fact, In just a couple of days, their cries from Hosanna, right, praise God in the highest heavens, is going to change to the cries of crucify him, which they did. You know, you and I, we can get disappointed with God too, especially when he doesn't meet our expectations and desires. Things happen, right, in life, and we wonder, God what are you up to? I never expected that. Come on, you're supposed to be God in my life. How in the world could you allow that to happen? And what we need to do is to stop trying to cast God in our image, but to simply let God be who he is, not who we wish he would be. And the reality is, God, who he is, is far better, far richer, far glorious than anything that we can conjure up with our own imagination. But just like the people in Israel, us too, we want a God that satisfies our desires, whether or not those align with our real needs. And we do. We welcome God into our life with anticipation and with expectation And, you know, we're laying down metaphorically our coats before him. 
And with all our hearts, we're in energy. We're waving palm branches before him until God does something that we don't expect or we don't like. And so we turn on him. Now, maybe, you know, we don't shake our fist in his face, but we all have our way, if we're followers of him, of turning on him. And we gripe and we complain and we say, God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. How in the world could you allow this thing to happen to my life? And the moment that God doesn't conform to our expectations, our whole world, right, gets unsettled. A baby is born with a disability. A person you love abandons you for another. A friend dies before their time. And the expectations we place on God, well, they turn into distrust and into disappointment. Someone has said that expectations are merely resentments under construction. That's pretty good. Well, the truth is God is not there to conform to our expectations and desires. He's not. He's there to meet us where our real need is where our deepest need is. And amid dire circumstances, what he most offers to us is not a way out, but he offers to us himself. He offers to us his very presence. And that is enough. That is more than enough. So if you're here this morning, perhaps, and something's happened or you're in the middle of something, and you're disappointed and disillusioned with God, well, the truth is perhaps that's a good thing. Maybe you need to be disappointed or disillusioned because we need to get rid of the illusions that we have about God and his kingdom and grab a hold of the real thing. Because the real thing is far richer than the illusions that we kind of lay upon God. And when we simply embrace Jesus for who he is, then you and I are changed forever. And it's for our good and for his glory. So what are the circumstances that you are in the midst of today that you just want to get rid of? Well, it's not that God in his goodness and his kindness doesn't come in to work in the midst of our circumstances and even change them. But what we really need, what we really need most desperately is not that our circumstances change, but that we change. And when we do, then we discover life in all its fullness, in all its riches, in all the love and peace and joy that God longs to pour in our lives is then open to be received and then poured out on others. Sadly, the people in Jerusalem, they missed it. They were looking for the wrong kind of kingdom and the wrong kind of king. And Jesus comes again to us today and says, Will you receive me as I am? And if you will do, you will find me in all my fullness. 
to meet us at our greatest need, which is to change me and to change you for our good and his glory. Will you pray with me now? Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for your word and for the way that Mark portrays for us the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Lord, again, we are amazed by you. You came to bring us life, real life, kingdom life, the kind of life that this world cannot offer. Lord, I would pray today that if there is someone in the audience this morning who has not yet experienced that kingdom life that you came to give, Lord, that they would turn to you and embrace you as you really are, not who we think you are or who we want you to be, but as you really are. Lord, we pray for all of us that you would reveal yourself anew and afresh today. And we would pray, Lord, even as you taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Not just as as it is in heaven, but also in us, Lord, we pray. Do it by your spirit for your name's sake and for our good. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.